read the first 12 verses. James 4, verses 1 through 12. As always, let's listen carefully as this is the word of God. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And we always need it. We need to be reminded of where wisdom comes from, why we need your wisdom. We need to know the wisdom of your word for all the conflict that comes into our lives. Thank you that James is a letter that shows unwise people like us how to be wise, how to walk, how to live in wisdom. We are aware that we live in a world filled with conflict, filled with disorder and division, filled with fights and quarrels all of which have made us proud and selfish. We need the wisdom of community. We need the wisdom of humility. Thank you that James points us to the one who is in himself, the wisdom from God. We need the wisdom he offers. Help us to understand your word and to develop the faith in Christ that James will speak into our hearts this morning. And so we pray, speak through your word, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, the question this morning is, do you want to age well? That sounds like a silly question. Everybody wants to age well. After all, what's the alternative? Either aging poorly or not aging at all. So why ask the question? Well, I was reading about a study on aging that happens when you age read about it. And the most comprehensive, long-lasting study ever conducted by Harvard is called the Grant Study. And they followed the lives of this remarkable graduating class from Harvard, the class of 1940. And John F. Kennedy was part of that class. And they followed, particularly the men, because back then Harvard, uh, they separated men and women. 
So women actually got, they went to Harvard, got their degrees from Radcliffe, I think is the way it was. It's not that way anymore. But they followed this group of men, this graduating class of 1940, for over 70 years. And they thought that this class was the most well-adjusted, happy, and geared for success group of people ever. In fact, they were considered the most successful graduating class of any university in American history. Now, I think West Point might want to challenge that. But there's no doubt that they were phenomenally successful by any definition. Captains of industry, leaders of states and nations, founders of civic organizations, leaders in medicine, titans in the law. And so the powers to be at Harvard decided to study this class. So they did this big, comprehensive, long study of the class of 1940, and they came out with wildly different conclusions about each of these lives. They came up with wildly different conclusions about what made them successful. Different conclusions that despite graduating from the same school at the same time, they reached different conclusions on what shaped these men and what were the formative influences in their lives. But here's the surprise. Everybody who took part in this study reached the same conclusion when it came to aging well. It was about the only thing they agreed on in the whole study. And the leader of the study said the key to aging well is our relationships. Here's the key point from the report. It is social aptitude, not intellectual brilliance or parental social class that leads to successful aging. The only thing that really matters in life are your relationships to other people. Now, if you've read the Bible, you understand that they're on to something because you've read Genesis 2, and it says that it's not good for man to be alone. God created us to be social beings. Relationships matter. But in a post-fall world, nowhere do the effects of sin show up more than in the strife and brokenness in our relationships, whether it's at home, at work, at school, even at church. The full effects of the fall are on display in how much strife and brokenness there are in our relationships. And James, today in, in chapter 4, wants to take a look at our relationship problems. Now remember, James, what he's been doing so far in this book, as we've gone through the book of James this summer, he's concerned to teach us what genuine faith looks like. So essentially the book is saying, you say you're a Christian, so here's what real faith looks like. And that's been sort of the theme as we've gone through the book. And where we ended last week at the end of James 3, he told us about two kinds of wisdom. False wisdom, according to the standards of the world, and that's what most people follow. And then there's godly wisdom. And uh, both kinds of wisdom, true and false, produce different kinds of communities. And so now James is zeroing in on the relational effects of false wisdom. And he's going to contrast it with true wisdom and give us some choices. So the importance of community actually comes out at the very end of chapter 3. Look at that last verse of chapter 3. It's there in your outline. James 
And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, the word righteousness, one of the most important words in the Bible, means to be put right. If you're righteous, you've been put right with God. To be a righteous person means that you've been put right with God. You've been forgiven and justified in his sight. However, sometimes a person using the word righteous uses it a little with a little different meaning. Uh, sometimes righteousness refers to our relationships with our neighbors and our friends. And in that case, to be a righteous person means to live justly and to live with integrity and with love. So sometimes to be a righteous person has to do with how we live with one another. Now, when James uses the word, it almost always means both. James uses the full range of the word, and it means to be put right with God and to be put right with others. And therefore, it really means all the Holy Spirit is supposed to do in your life, putting every part of you right, your relationship with God, your relationship with yourself, and your relationship with others. Just getting a little too warm here. So that's why James 3.18 is such a significant verse. We call it a hinge verse uh, because it connects the last passage with the next passage. And so here James likens righteousness, this supernatural character change, to a harvest. So what do you have to have to have a harvest? Where do you start? Well, you start with seed. You know, you, you, crops don't grow without seed. Something has to get planted in order for there to be a harvest. So what's the seed of this supernaturally changed life? Well, he tells us in James 3.18 that it's making peace, being peaceable. And peacemaking doesn't just mean that make peace between two people. It means creating a peaceable community one that gets along and works together. So, therefore, James 3.18 is teaching us you'll never change. Your life won't change. The Spirit isn't going to change your life apart from involvement in a peaceable community. Let's stop for a second and talk about that because we live in one of the most individualistic societies in the history of the world. If you've grown up in the West, in Western culture, I know that's not all of you have, but if you have, it's been pounded into you that you are who you choose to be. You are who you determine yourself to be. You are who you seek to be. You are who you make an effort to be. You make yourself who you are. That's what our culture would say. But most societies in the world and throughout history, along with nearly every social scientist out there and the scriptures say that's totally wrong. It's just not true. I know that's not politically correct or probably not even socially acceptable. But virtually every reputable source says you're the product of your family, your culture, you're the product of your primary community. Social scientists will tell you even your beliefs are much more a product of relationships than they are of rationality. Now, with that said, I have to tell you, one of the things I love the most about pastoring this church is the fact that over the years, we've heard a number of people say, 
my life has been changed by this church. And I love that. However, way too often what they mean is that by coming to these services and hearing the music and listening to the sermons, something along the lines of, it's been so inspiring. My life's been changed. And I want you to know that if you really get to know all the people sitting around you, you'll hear some people say, my life's been changed by coming here. And yet the reality is their life hasn't been changed. They have the same flaws. They haven't gotten better. They have all the same besetting sins. They're still fighting the same temptations. They haven't really gotten any better, but they feel better. A lot of people feel better by coming to church, but they're really not better. And I think there's a reason for that. The Bible says, I won't read you all the texts because there's a ton of them, but it says that we're to honor one another, accept one another, bear with one another, forgive one another, confess our sins to one another. Start to hear the repetitive pattern there. You're to encourage one another, challenge one another, admonish one another, confront one another. There's about 60 one another commands. And for the most part, you can't do them in the middle of a worship service. I don't care how inspired you get. If this is the main way you experience community in our church, where you only participate in the worship service, you're not actually in community. You're just in an aggregation of like-minded people. And as a result, you may get inspired, and you may feel better, but not actually get better because it's in community that you get better real life is meeting with and essentially becoming like your social community the people you play with and eat with the people you converse with and counsel with and open your hearts to the people that you practice all those one another commands with face to face in regular community now all of that is not to say you can't get better through worship We've had some people's lives get dramatically changed through worship. But even in those cases, how do they sustain it? Through active engagement and community, by serving others, by building relationships with others. Shameless plug here for our community groups. Okay, signups will start later this month for groups starting in mid-September. So when you do that, you sign up for that. I know you will. I hope you will. You begin to demonstrate what type of friendship you truly value. And James gives us two pictures of friendship. So first we'll consider friendship with the world, which is what we should be fighting against. Keep in mind this word friendship, it's, it's used casually today. You know, when we talk about I have all these friends on Facebook. A whole lot of them I've never even met. They're not like real friends. They're not people I'm calling at 2 o'clock in the morning, okay? But we call them friends. Makes us feel good. I have 1,700 friends. Actually, I have about four, but it looks really good. But in biblical times, friendship is a serious word, and it describes close intimacy in this context that James is writing in. And so he starts by telling us about the danger of friendship with the world. Verses 1 through 5, friendship with the world. He's telling us that friendship with the world causes conflict with others, conflict within yourself, and ultimately conflict with God. 
says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? James is talking about fights and quarrels in the church. And I can't help but think that the adversary has succeeded in getting this church or these churches to fight with one another to such an extent they lose sight of where the real battle is. You know, as we're focused on battling with the world, a world system that encourages us to want more stuff, to prioritize our own comfort, to ignore the poor while we focus on ourselves, the adversary would like nothing more than to divide us so we fight among ourselves and have no energy left for the real battle going on. James says we have to fervently resist friendship with the world. In verse 1, he talks about passions or desires that battle within us. We want selfish gain, pleasure in this world, and that which we think is best for us. And the problem comes when you put people together who all have these same sinful, selfish desires. And since not everyone can get their own way, it causes quarrels and fights among you. Well, my first thought is, isn't that a picture of marriage? If you put two selfish sinners together, you're not going to get perfect peace all the time. Hopefully that's not a surprise to anyone. These quarrels James talks about get serious when it comes to relationships, whether it's marriage or friends or neighbors or even in the church. And in verse 2, James says, you murder and covet almost certainly hyperbole. As far as we know, there weren't any murders taking place within the church. We don't have any evidence of that. But it does take us back to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus equated anger between brothers with murder. He said in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. These sinful desires, selfish desires, are dangerous. And all conflict comes from desire within us, desires that are motivated by a longing for earthly pleasure. Verse 3 says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You're not going to God in prayer, James says. If you are, you're going to him in order to get more for yourself, which kind of misses the point. So even the prayers of these people are self-centered. On the other hand, Jesus taught us in Matthew 6, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We're to seek what is best for the sake of God's name. We want his will to be done, not ours. But friendship with the world says my will be done. My name be great. And this is where we realize that hostility towards one another is just evidence of hostility towards God. All of this leads to a startling statement in verse 4. 
concerning friendship with the world. So far we've seen with friendship with the world comes from sinful desires, is motivated by a longing for earthly pleasure. But now in verse 4, we see that friendship with the world results in spiritual adultery against God. Throughout this book, James uh, has been addressing his hearers, the people he's writing to, as brothers. But now he says, you adulterous people. Throughout the Old Testament, God describes his relationship with his people as a marriage. And when his people forsake him in sin, it's a picture of spiritual unfaithfulness or adultery. Jeremiah 3.20, God says to his people, Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Some versions use the word betrayal, others use adulterous. You can find similar verses in Ezekiel and Hosea and, in fact, most of the prophets. This, again, is a serious picture. The more we're conformed to the pattern of the world, living like the world, loving the world, the more we betray God and cheat on him. And the pain and heartache involved in idolatry are wrapped up in this image of spiritual adultery. Now, in our culture, even in the church, we've sought after the pleasure of the world through immorality, impurity, idolatry. We've satisfied ourselves with the things of this world, more stuff, more possessions, nicer cars, bigger houses, better luxuries. We've pursued positions and praise and popularity. We've lived for what is best for us in this world. And James is saying, in the process, we've been running around on God. And we need to repent and come back to him. And that need to repent helps us make sense of these verses, verses 4 and 5. It says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? James is reminding us that God jealously longs for the spirit he made to live in us. It takes us back to Exodus, uh, where multiple times God tells his people that he is a jealous God. Now, an illustration may help explain why this is such good news for us. As a husband, I am jealous for the affections of my wife. And if anyone or anything threatens uh, to steal her love from me, it will be met with the strongest opposition. In fact, if anything or anyone threatens her in any way, it'll be met with the strongest opposition. You know, you mess with my woman, you incur my wrath. It's pretty much how it works. And that's true even in the family. You can ask my children. You know, you could get away with a lot in our house, but don't talk back to mom. That was, there was a line. They will tell you that that carried consequences. Mess with my woman, incur my wrath. Even if you're 12, I don't care. But that's a good thing in marriage. It's the way it's supposed to be. Well, it's a good thing in our relationship with God. He's jealous for our affections. God is infinitely jealous for his people, and he will oppose with divine force anything or anybody who threatens their good. God is jealous for the affections of your heart as a follower of Christ. Now, this isn't an insecure jealousy. 
you know, that's afraid you're going to find something or someone better because there isn't anyone or anything better. This is a secure jealousy that seeks what's best for you by guarding your heart from adulterous pursuits. He tells us to run from the things of this world and cling to him in order to find what we need. We need to set aside friendship with the world and refocus our lives on having a friendship with the Lord. Set aside friendship with the world and refocus our lives on having a friendship with the Lord. Verses 6 through 10, it says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So instead of running to friendship with the world, we ought to run to friendship with the Lord. And this kind of friendship is not birthed in the sinful desires of the flesh, but it comes from the gracious desire of God. It says, but he gives more grace to the humble. You know, as we've had our worldliness exposed in the book of James, it's possible to look at all these truths and all these commands and feel, you know, it's just too hard. It's too much. It's too difficult. And yet this is where we see the grace of God. It isn't easy to resist the appeal of the world. And yet there's so many areas where we've bought in to this world's friendship. And sometimes you just have to wonder, is the struggle, is it ever going to end? However, Paul tells us, 1 Thessalonians 5, He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Philippians 1.6, the one who called you will bring to completion this good work. By God's grace, he will produce the fruit of faith in you. So go to him, trust in him. God is merciful, gracious, all-loving, and he willingly supplies all that we need to obey his commands. I love what Dr. Alec Mocher, he's one of the great sort of Old Testament scholars of our time. And uh, he said about this particular verse, what comfort there is in this verse. It tells us that God is tirelessly on our side. He never falters in respect to our needs. He always has more grace at hand for us. He is never less than sufficient. He always has more and yet more to give. Whatever we may forfeit when we put self first, we cannot forfeit our, our salvation for there is always more grace. No matter what we do to him, he is never beaten. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives more grace. Praise God. He gives more grace. So we see friendship with the Lord not only comes from the gracious desire of God, it's also motivated by our longing for satisfaction. Friendship with the Lord realizes that if we turn away and seek friendship with the world, we're going to experience the opposition of God. And yet friendship with the Lord results in submission to the authority of God. James, uh, verse 7, James says, submit, yourse submit yourselves, therefore, to God. James lists several commands that tell us what that looks like. 
What does it mean to submit yourselves, therefore, to God? We want to grow in our relationship with God, our friendship with the Lord. Here's some things we should do. First thing he tells us is to resist the devil forcefully. Sounds good. It's evident in verse 7. James wants us to stop resisting God and start resisting the devil. It's baffling from the time of Adam and Eve all the way back in Genesis 3 to the lives of every one of us here and now. Each of us from time to time, sometimes too often, believes the lies of the devil. That's the essence of sin, trusting the devil while distrusting God. Sin is believing the lives of the prince of this world that say we need something or some person or some status, all the while disbelieving God who says what you need is me. Our battles with the world and flesh and the devil, and if you're fighting God, you're facing the wrong way. So that's the first thing. Second, he says, seek God repentantly and pursue purity. Verse 8, James tells us, draw near to God, which implies we've turned away from him. It's a call to repent of our sin, return to our gracious Lord. And it's interesting, he says, that purity is both internal and external. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, external, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, internal. James wants us to purify our hearts, our minds, our desires, our motives, down to the core of our being, of who we are. Third, he wants us to take sin seriously. Verse 9 can, sounds pretty depressing if you just read it. Be wretched and mourn and weep. God loves you has a wonderful plan for your life. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I'm going to preach on this at Christmas. Joy to the world. But those who live in friendship with the world tend not to see sin as a big deal. But James is telling us don't be trivial with sin. We should grieve over our sin, mourning and weeping over it. We need to see sin like that. There is a reason we have a confession of sin at every service. You need it. I need it. We all need it. And I know for some of you, it's the only confession of sin that comes out of your mouth all week. And we'll get to it before communion today. And I hope and pray that you really mean it when you say those words. When was the last time you grieved over your sin before God? Now, a lot of people will tell you that's self-defeating. What about feeling good about yourself and self-esteem? The Bible doesn't actually talk about those things very much. The clear teaching of the scriptures from beginning to end is to humble yourself. And that comes to us in verse 10. James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. When we humble ourselves before God, we don't have to lift ourselves up. He does the lifting for us. God will give you grace in your humility and he will be the one to raise you up. You need not do that on your own. When you have been humbled before God, it inevitably affects the way you speak to others. So James has moved from two pictures of wisdom through two pictures of friendship to its logical conclusion with two pictures of speech. We've gone wisdom, friendship, speech. Worldly wisdom, godly wisdom, friendship with the world, friendship with the Lord. And now we're going to look at worldly and godly speech. And that's how he ends. Verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? 
And so James is putting a bookend on the discussion that he started at the beginning of chapter 3 regarding the tongue. You can go back and listen to that sermon that Dave uh, preached a few weeks ago. Worldly speech does two things. It discourages one another as not one of the com- was one another commands. And to speak against, he says, speak against a brother, it's to criticize, it's to attack, it's to slander another person. It can refer to speaking critically to someone about someone else. So gossip and slander kill community. It's self-centered rather than God-centered. Second thing worldly speech does is it dishonors God. When you slander, you put yourself above the law of God as if it's not necessary for you to love your neighbor and how you speak. In the process, you offend the giver of that law, who's God himself. And obviously, there's places in our lives where God says in his word that it is right and good to confront one another in sin, which clearly can be difficult. But that's not done out of selfish ambition or to hurt your brother, but to help him to honor God, to restore him, to recover him, to lead him to repentance. Criticizing doesn't do any of those things. So worldly speech discourages one another and dishonors God. On the other hand, godly speech encourages one another and honors God. It's the kind of speech that ought to characterize believers. Is this encouraging? Does it honor God? Speech that demonstrates a love of God and a love of neighbor. And out of the overflow of our hearts, we want our words to glorify God and point others to the truth. This is what flows from the heart of one who's striving after true wisdom. This is what flows from one who's a friend of the Lord and not a friend of the world. This is what flows from the one who demonstrates godly speech. It's what flows from the heart of someone who humbles themselves before the Lord. It's an old book. It's very interesting. Gene Edwards has written this unique book about church conflict. It's actually a long parable, and it's called The Tale of Three Kings, A Study in Brokenness. And the three kings in the book are Saul, David, and Absalom. And Edwards uses this as a parable to study the dysfunction that leads to power struggles in many churches. The book reflects on David's response to the threats of both Saul and Absalom that they posed to his leadership. And there's one passage that's particularly moving. It's based on the episode in 1 Samuel 19 where King Saul hurls his spear at David in an attempt to kill him. And he writes, David had a question. What do you do when someone throws a spear at you? My first thought was, hopefully you duck. But does it not seem odd that David didn't know the answer to that question? After all, everyone knows what to do when a spear is thrown at them. You pick it up and throw it back. When someone throws a spear at you like Saul did to David and it missed him and stuck in the wall, well, you just wrench it out of the wall and you throw it right back. Everyone else does. And David, in doing this small feat of returning thrown spears, You'll prove many things. You're courageous. You stand for the right. You stand against the wrong. You're tough. Can't be pushed around. You'll stand for injustice and against unfair treatment. You're the defender of the faith and the keeper of the flame and the detector of heresy. You will not be wronged. 
all of these attributes combined to prove that you are also a candidate for kingship. Yes, perhaps you are the Lord's anointed one after the order of King Saul. Think about that. Is that a positive thing to be after the order of King Saul? Not according to the book of First and Second Samuel, which in the old the Hebrew Old Testament is one book. Saul tried to kill David multiple times. But one time, David had the opportunity to kill Saul. It's kind of a funny story. I won't go into it. But he had the opportunity to kill Saul. And all of his men told him to do it. Uh, obviously, the Lord has brought him here, so you can kill him. Take advantage of it. Take him now. You remember David's reply? The Lord forbid I should do this thing to the Lord's anointed. Saul violated the law. He disobeyed God. He lied about it. He was so very proud. And the Lord removed him from the throne. Acting after the order of King Saul is acting with false wisdom and worldly speech and putting your friendship with the world before your relationship with God. And believers always have a choice when they face conflict in the church, whatever the issue involves. You can pick up the spear and hurl it back, hoping to win the battle and keep your position. And you can even claim the cause of truth and justice. Or you can put humility and unity at the top of your list just under the gospel. Christians may lose the battle if they refuse to throw the spear back. They could lose their church and have to move. Then again, the church was never theirs in the first place. Humble believers may lose the earthly battle, but they will sow a harvest of righteousness. Even when Christians think a doctrinal issue is worthy of conflict, they must always lead with humility. Fight for the gospel with humility. Argue other important truths with humility. Acquiesce in minor matters with humility. Always be prepared to be corrected by anyone who argues God's truth accurately. And, and David's another example. He submitted to Abigail in 1 Samuel 25. It's a beautiful display of a superior submitting to what was could only be called his social inferior simply because she was right. That's the kind of wisdom from above, which is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, James 3.17. But where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice, James 3.16. Conflicts over doctrine can occur over principal differences, or they could be a matter of disorder caused by pride. And I'm convinced that if believers pursue humility towards their opponents, doing their best to be at peace with all as far as it depends on them, Romans 12, they'll experience unity in Christ. The relationship may be one-sided for a while, maybe even for a long while. These believers, however, will do right by Christ and his church. They will do their part to grow the church into the unity of the faith and the stature of the fullness of Christ. They will be part of creating a harvest of righteousness sown in peace as one who, by God's grace, makes peace. It's not such a bad thing. And it is living after the order of King Jesus. Think about that. We need to pray.
Take a moment to do that, and then I will close, and we will prepare ourselves to come to the Lord's table. Our Lord and our God, thank you. You have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. God, our Father, we confess to you, although we claim the name of Jesus, our hearts turn elsewhere when, when we're in the midst of conflict, when we want to be right, when we want to win. So, Father, we ask that you would make it possible for us, even as we face the conflict of everyday life, that we might be able to stop and repent, that we might be able to ask you for true wisdom for that moment, for that conflict, for that selfish desire. Father, give us the wisdom that comes from above. Would you show us what it means to be wise? Would you make us wise people? Let this be a church of wisdom. Teach us how to be wise and bring the word into our lives. Let our relationships, let our community, let our church, let our lives be characterized by your wisdom, a wisdom we can know personally in Jesus who died on the cross, who's been made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In him all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom are hidden. Let us know that. Let us experience that. Make us wise. Forgive us and work in us this summer. As we go through James, teach us how to ask for wisdom that comes from above, to receive it, to reflect on it, so that we will become more like your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. All of you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.